0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Perhaps you've heard the term mission drift. The term mission drift. It means when a person, persons, or group drifts away from their original mission, In the book, Mission Drift, the authors give examples of common ways historically people have drifted. Did you know that in the year 1636, Harvard University's stated mission was to instruct students to know God and Jesus Christ? Today, Harvard's chief chaplain, as of August 2021, is Greg Epstein He's an open atheist, and he's the author of the book Good Without God. That is mission drift. In today's passage, we read the Great Commission, the mission for you, for me, for us. But mission drift is so easy. We can drift from mission for overtly sinful reasons or even subtler reasons of things that are good and worth doing but aren't precisely the mission. Think of how we can do that personally. In our life, we can start to think that we're here to build our own legacy or to build our own brand or to accomplish our own achievements. Some of us can start to think we're here for the purpose of winning political arguments on Facebook. We can start thinking that we're here to protect our personal comfort and to put boundaries around our own leisure. We think we're here so that we can have a perfectly controlled schedule. Or as a church, we can start believing that we're here for an inward focus. Or we could start having hostility toward our mission field. Or as Satan has been very adept at doing for many churches over the last two years, especially, we can start being derailed by inward fighting. Here we have in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the culmination of the gospel of Matthew. Brothers and sisters, we started this in December of 2020. Here we are now. We've had 27 vital chapters of the history of what Jesus has done including the ethics of how we should live. But now it all culminates to what we should do. What is our mission? Why are you alive? Why am I? Why are we here together at 2100 Noble Road? And this is the answer. To fulfill this great commission. The question for us then is, will we fall to mission drift? Or will we be mission true? So look with me in verse 16. If you have a bulletin that you received on the counter this morning, I've broken down headings in the passage. And the first heading is the setting of the commission. So look in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Remember at this point, he's recently risen from the dead. But notice some doubted. The Greek word here actually is probably better translated,'re hesitant. Some were still hesitant. I'm not sure what we should do. I'm not sure what is the next step, but Jesus had actually now risen to supernaturally empower this small band of disciples through which he would change the world. It's amazing that Jesus' own ministry, if you graded it just from, from a number standpoint, had diminished from when he started. But as he said, greater works will God work through you. And so now with this small band, he instructs them to fulfill the Great Commission. And in it, he next gives us the ground of his authority. So the next heading on your bulletin is the authority for the commission. And I want to pause on this one because I want us to appreciate what Jesus says here and what it means for us now. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, all, don't miss the all, 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 Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's let's answer two questions from that phrase. First, what does it mean to have all authority in heaven and on earth? The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper put it this way There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. His original quotation was in Dutch and so sometimes people mistranslate it to say overall creation but he didn't say overall creation he said overall human existence here's why that matters. When we hear creation we think rocks, trees, but human existence means business, politics, education, your career, your priorities. Jesus has authority over all of those. But what are some competing grounds of authority in our culture today? that are attempting to undercut Jesus' authority. One of them is scientific materialism. The author J.P. Moreland wrote this, Everything outside of science is a matter of mere belief and subjective opinion, of which rational assessment is impossible. Have you heard people talk about science this way? Science is infallible. It's unquestionable. It has all authority. But if you notice that you have to assume that, and you cannot prove it. (laughs) Think about it this way. Imagine there's a truth box, okay? And you say, I'm not going to put anything in the truth box unless it passes the scientific method. Well, guess what? You have to have stuff in the box already. You have to have logic in the box. You have to have mathematics in the box. You have to have um, intellectual honesty in the box that you'll report all all data honestly. You also have to have in the box already the scientific method. (laughs) You have to assume it's in the box before you can use it as an analytical tool to put anything in the box. The idea that science as raw information can give us all authority is hopelessly naive and historically false. Science does not have that ability. That doesn't mean that we don't appreciate science. I'm really, really grateful that we can fly planes. <laughs> I'm grateful that we can have medical advancements and clean water. But think about, think about it this way. Science can only answer life's easiest questions. If someone jumps off of several stories to their own death, science can tell us the speed. Science can tell us the physics. Science can tell us the forensics. Science can't tell us where they are now. Science can't tell us why they jumped. Science can't tell us where they're from. Science can't tell us what they were wrestling with. We rejoice in science, but we understand its deficiencies. Aren't you glad that Genesis tells us not just scientific data, but it tells us where we're from, what went wrong, who we are, what hope there is, and where it's going. See, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and there is no other source that can make that claim. Here's another common competing claim though. Not only do we give science authority that doesn't belong to science, but also we give ourselves authority that doesn't belong to us. We might call this the sovereign self. Now in, in history, there was a long time in human history where individuals were devalued When Christianity Christianized the world, one of the good things it did is it gave individuals dignity. But a common thing we do is we take a Christian truth and then we shoot the arrow way past the target. So now instead of humans having dignity, individuals have sovereignty. Individuals determine truth or meaning or authority. But if you thought about how unstable that is, if you and I are able to determine truth, meaning, and identity, that assumes that we even know from one day to the next what we want. But our feelings are very, very fickle, which gives us an incredibly unstable sinking sand of a foundation. But further, if you and I are sovereign self, that are able to make our own conclusions without being impacted by society, we're actually believing in an illusion. In 1976, Gail Sheehy wrote the book, Passages. In it, she said, you need to be able to look inside and express yourself apart from any external valuations or accreditations. But is that actually possible? Can you look within and express yourself without being influenced by any other external interpretive grid? Haven't you noticed when the world says, just believe in yourself and be true to yourself, then they tell you what it means to be true to yourself. <laughs> the reality is the sovereign self is not only unstable, it's an illusion. So hear what Jesus said in verse 18. There is only one person with all authority in heaven and on earth, and it's not a fill-in-the-blank question. The one person with all authority on heaven and earth is Jesus. Now Christian, what would it look like if you actually believed that? I think we would live and witness very differently. Many recent polls have shown that especially younger Christians believe that it's impropriety to share their faith. They say we shouldn't witness to anybody else because, you know, then I'm just pushing my personal beliefs on someone else. Do you know what that's like? That's like if you're driving on I-40 and you see a car off in a ditch and it's on fire and people are in it, and you're like, you know, I don't know if I should call 911 because I don't want to push my personal beliefs on somebody else. Look, the world apart from Jesus is perishing. If we're unwilling to share the truth of how they can be saved, we are not loving, we're profoundly unloving and selfish. All authority has been given in heaven and earth to Jesus. We should share truth with confidence and without reservation. Whatever Jesus says is truth. Whatever disagrees with Jesus is false. All authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus. The other question I would have is, well, in what sense has it been given to Jesus? I think that's an interesting point because throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has exhibited that he has all authority. Remember, even the winds and the waves obey him. So in what sense does he now have all authority? How has it been given to him? What's different? I think the answer biblically is that now that the Messiah has come and lived and died and risen, now God is mediates all authority through King Jesus. Jesus is now in a position where the authority of God is mediated through the Son, through the risen Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we are right to understand that it all comes down to how we respond to Jesus. The word all will be throughout the passage. Did you notice that when our brother read it? He has all authority. He commissions all his disciples He sends them to all nations. We're to obey all things. And he'll be with us, in Greek actually, all days. Or we might say in English, all ways. So the Great Commission then is the key hinge in the unfolding of history. Now wait, think with me for a second. The disciples are hearing this for the first time. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And what we could be tempted to do is then take that authority and move it in whatever direction we want to move it in. And say, cool, you have all authority. I have a passion project. Let's do this. But actually, Jesus is about to tell us what we're to do. So the Great Commission has parameters through which God's authority compels us to go. So look now in verse 19. And if you're on the bulletin, this is now the heading, The Commission, Make and Mature Disciples. Now, whatever byproducts come out of the commission, cultural renewal, cultural transformation, praise God, but those are not actually the commission. The commission is verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The the word, therefore, is important. It means because Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth, we can do this. We can go we can make disciples. In English, it's difficult to tell because it looks like go is a verb. It looks like baptize or teach might be a verb, but there's actually only one verb in this entire section of Jesus' teaching, and it's the verb translated in English, make disciples. This is the one thing he's called us to do. It's in the second person plural. So he's calling all of his disciples to do it. Many scholars actually think maybe even more than the 11 were present when Jesus said this. But clearly, as Acts shows, this is a commission for every single follower of Jesus. So all disciples are to make disciples. Now the word go in English, looks like a verb, and, and, and that's okay to get technical for just a moment. When a participle precedes a verb in Greek, it can sometimes draw the force of that verb, so it looks like a command. But here's why I want to pause here for a second. Since Hudson Taylor and William Carey, wonderful missionaries who understood this passage as a need to go out and go to the lost, they were right. But sometimes we, unfortunately, read this passage as being a mission for someone else somewhere else. It's not a mission for someone else, somewhere else. Going reminds us it's for all of us wherever we are living. As you are going would be a great translation of it. So as you are going throughout your life. So hear this very well. Jesus is telling his disciples what we need to spend our life doing, not where we need to spend our life living. This is a commission about what we're to be doing, not where we're to be living as we're doing it. So a disciple is what he tells all of us to make. So if we're trying to make a disciple, we should know what we're trying to make. What is a disciple then? And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen it. A disciple is someone who hears and obeys Jesus. Remember in his parables when he said, he who has Ears to hear, let him hear. And what do we see here in verse 20? Teach them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. So a disciple is someone who hears and obeys. That's what we're all to be making. And as we make them, we're to make them from everyone. So notice now the next phrase. Go and make disciples of all nations. So the target of the Great Commission is all peoples. All right, again, we want to clarify our language a little bit because when we hear the word nation, we tend to think of countries or nation states. We know that's not what Jesus meant because in Acts 1, verse 8, he commissioned his disciples again and say, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, not a nation or country. Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus is not talking about geographical boundaries on a map. He's talking about anybody who still needs Jesus. And they might be from any place. Now God has been so good that he's brought peoples to a place like Raleigh. The nations are here. The peoples are here. Many people who don't know Christ are here. So our commission can be fulfilled here. Now he gives The elements of making disciples. And that's the end of verse 19 leading into 20. So all of us are to make disciples wherever we live of any one. And here are the elements of that. Notice verse 19 continues. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them. So the two constitutive elements are baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. Now, here's a question that scholars have. Are these the result or the means? Is it like if you become a disciple, here are the results of what you'll do. You'll be baptized and then you'll be taught. Or is it like the means? You become a disciple when you're baptized or when you are taught. I don't think either term is particularly helpful. That's why I like, and I know I'm a nerd, but constitutive elements. Okay. They're not the means, and here's why that's important. You're not saved because you got baptized. You're not saved because you've learned obedience. The fruit of our salvation is what Jesus has done. Or sorry, the root, <laughs> the root of our salvation, is what Jesus has done. But the fruit will be baptism, and it will be learning to obey. So these are the elements of what a disciple looks like. D.A. Carson writes the New Testament can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or is not instructed. Indeed, the force of this command is to make Jesus' disciples responsible to make disciples who are characterized by baptism and instruction. As a pastor for years, I've taught that actually right after Matthew 28 is Acts 1 and 2. And so right after Jesus leaves, he empowers the disciples to make disciples who are immediately baptized and added to the church. On that basis, I always encourage people to be baptized if they are indeed a follower of Christ. And then people always come up to me and they say, Josh, but what about the thief on the cross? And I always say, well, he died. <laughs> so, so like if that's the reason, that would be a reason. But other than that, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you're baptized. And notice you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because you're showing allegiance. Do you remember as a kid, they don't do this anymore, but when you were a kid, did you say the Pledge of Allegiance at school? All right, this is what baptism is. You're saying, yes, I belong to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and His power is at work in me. And in the New Testament... That is done in the affirmation of a covenant community. That's why Acts 2 says those who were baptized were added. So when someone's baptized, there's an amen from other believers. Even the Ethiopian eunuch has Philip there. So the idea is that covenant community happens through the entrance of baptism. I want to. Uh, do everything I can to help some of you who are thinking through that still. And so in the month of March, we're going to take three Sundays right after worship, and we'll just take 10 minutes each Sunday to talk about what baptism is for anyone who's interested. I've done this for years, and there's a little tiny book you get called Understanding Baptism. It's very small, but very, very helpful. If you haven't been baptized or if you're interested in it, I encourage you to come to the class Whether or not at the end you determine to be baptized, still come and learn about it. It's a helpful way to make sure we're clear on this important ordinance. Notice the verse continues. The next element is revealed in verse 20. We are not only baptized, but also we are to be taught. And notice we are to be taught to obey. And notice we're taught to obey everything. Everything. So all that Jesus commanded, let me just point out here, Jesus expects then that those who are his followers will have a posture of obedience. Those who are his followers will have a posture of obedience. We don't all obey perfectly, but there is a posture of we want to obey the Lord. We desire to do what Jesus wants us to do. Hence, we are truly his followers. Now, the word teaching is the right translation of the Greek word. But when we hear the word teaching, we tend to only think of a classroom setting. But remember, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, though Jesus has taught publicly five times, most of his instruction has been via imitation. The disciples have followed him and seen him. So here's an important question for you to answer before the Lord in your own heart this morning. Who am I letting instruct me? And whom am I imitating? Who am I letting instruct me? And whom am I imitating? Jesus' desire is that you will be instructed from his word. Remember all that he's commanded us. And that you will learn to imitate people who are following him well. A key thing that I would encourage you to do if you haven't done this, um, attend a Sunday school class. So that you can receive instruction, but also see others follow Christ and you can grow in imitation. As a church, we need to always be thinking through this well, but, but make sure you think through it. And, and tell me, Josh, I, I don't know, where can I learn how to imitate Christ? Where can I receive instruction from Christ? Look, we're all imitating something. And we're all receiving instruction from somewhere. Make sure it's from Jesus. Now this reminds us that disciples grow and that the make disciples command isn't just the entrance exam, but these are disciples who continue a journey of following Jesus. It's been said, well, we're not to make decisions, we're to make disciples. If we're just quickly counting hands at an event and we're not seeing people grow, we're not following what Jesus has said to do. These are people who are getting baptized and who are learning to obey. So a disciple is not just a one-time experience, it's an enduring reality. Therefore, the disciple is someone who has to be growing. But we don't want to miss the fact that that includes the entrance, right? So we want to get out and try to tell people about the Lord who don't know Him. On our church calendar in the next month or so, we're going to begin doing what we call harvest groups. We read today Matthew 9, and it just means to get out in the harvest, and it just means to go out with some other believers from our church and talk to people about Jesus. That may sound scary, um, but that's how I learned to do it when I was young. Older men in the church just took me along and said, we're going to talk to people about the Lord and just see how they respond. And that, that was great training ground for that. That's actually close to what Jesus had them do here. But in all of this, don't miss the beauty of the final phrase in verse 1. 20, this is the assurance. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When I translated this this week, I noticed for the very first time that actually it says pasos tas haremos, meaning I'm with you all days to the end of the age. You know why I like that better? Because it means he's with us every day till the end. So Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, and he hasn't called us on a mission that he's not presently empowering us with. See, this is what the disciples were so afraid of. Remember in Acts 1, what's going to happen? Are you going to set up the kingdom? Jesus says, no, you'll receive the Spirit. And then he ascends back into heaven. But he didn't truly leave them, nor has he truly left us. As he was promised in the opening chapter of Matthew, he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he ends the book the same way. Behold, I'm with you. Now, here's what's interesting that sometimes we forget what excellently skilled writers the gospel authors were. And Matthew has structured his book around five public teachings called discourses. So there's narrative and then a discourse. There's narrative and then a discourse. One, two, three, four, five. And then when there's the sixth narrative, the crucifixion and resurrection, do you know what the final public teaching is? It's Jesus telling us to teach. That's how carefully structured the gospel is. So the sixth discourse is you and I carrying out the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So here's some big takeaways for us. In the Great Commission, the Bible moves the gospel from a come and see message to a go and tell message. In the Great Commission, the gospel moves from disciples who were eyewitnesses to disciples who are ear witnesses. In the Great Commission, we now know the lifelong mission from which we must not drift. We have a lifelong mission to make disciples who are both coming to know Christ and growing as learners and obeyers of Christ. Knowing what our mission is prepares us to make some goals. Now, I've shared some of these in Sunday school, so some of you have heard them. But let me share some burdens for, for my heart in terms of the Great Commission. Uh, many research, many pieces of research that have been done show that the Five Points community of Raleigh is one of the least Christianized sections of the entire triangle. Now, God has placed us in this section. Of course, I want to reach... Anything. I want to see God turn the triangle upside down for Christ, honestly. But the five points area is where we are directly. And so here are some goals that I think we can talk about to help us be on mission. First, let's all make it a prayer goal for this year to make a disciple. Let's all make it a prayer goal to make a disciple. Wouldn't it be great if you were praying for someone by name who needs Jesus? And throughout the year, we're sharing how God's at work there and what the Lord might do there. That might be someone in your own house. Some of you have written prayer cards for us, and that's what you have. It might be anyone, but someone that we're praying for. As a church, because the Great Commission is about making disciples who are baptized, that means the Great Commission ends in churches. And then churches send out missions. So the cycle continues, meaning that we as a church should set a goal to plant a church. Pray that we'll plant a church within 10 years, raising up people here, sending them in the mission. I think there's needs for churches here, actually. So we could even see that happen locally. Furthermore, you know what else we should pray for? That God might send one of us across the seas. So we should pray that as a church, we send our own foreign missionaries out, that they become the people that we support. We should also then as a church be praying specifically for five points, I think secondly for NC State, and I think third for whatever your location is, your neighborhood, your workplace, those spheres of missionality. In short, though, here's what the prayer is. May God give us a greater concern for the Great Commission. Now this morning, if you're here and you're thinking, well, that's an interesting mission for Christians to have but you might say I'm not a Christian where does this leave me remember in Matthew 1 verse 21 we're told that God's son is to be named Jesus because he's come to save his people from their sins Romans 5 8 puts it memorably that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us now Matthew makes this clear we read Matthew 9 together Jesus' compassion are on the helpless and harassed sheep without a shepherd If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your shepherd, he loves you even now. In fact, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he says to love the Lord your God, but second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that love was expressed most clearly on the cross. So what you should know this morning is that Jesus has come to give his life for the mission. And he cares about everyone in the mission field. So if today you think, Well, I'm not a believer. Well, then you're the one he came to save. And the mission is for you to come and receive Jesus and follow him. And for us, it's to help you. May we grow together. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you, Lord, for clarity about the mission. And I pray for power to keep us from drifting. I pray personally we would guard our own affections and the use of our time or the refusal to use our time because of our own self-centered choices. And instead, Lord, help us to see our Savior on a cross and to realize that that will interrupt our resources, that will interrupt our schedule. That will change the way we make choices about what we're going to do with our life. Everything from where we live to who we spend our time with. Because we have a mission. The best news of the mission is that Jesus is with with us every day of it till the end. So Lord, I pray that we would never be discouraged or afraid. Because Christ has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, Lord, we pray that you would send us out into our mission field this year with power. We pray, Lord, that we would see you bring people to yourself. But we trust that as we diligently plant and water, that you and your own sovereign timing will give the growth. So help us individually, but help us collectively as Emmanuel. God, we thank you so much, though, that the reason we have a mission to go is because Jesus came. And then Jesus went to the cross in our place. So God, as sinners who deserve the righteous wrath that leads us to our own death, we see that Jesus' death frees us from it and that he's risen for life so that we can die never again but have life eternally. So help us to remember what he's given. And if someone this morning needs to receive it, move them to receive it. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scali pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to EBCRaleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.